Welcome to our True Crime, True Family podcast. Quarantine equals no life, so we've decided to start a true crime podcast. I'm Emily, and along with my mom, Kate, and our cousin Paige, we will be discussing popular true crime documentaries and cases. Due to sensitive subject material and explicit language, viewer discretion is advised. So... (laughs) Like, Cropsy takes place on Staten Island, and Staten Island just seems disgusting. Well, it has the largest, it's like, garbage. Trash yeah. dump that you, yeah, fresh kills something that you could see from space. It's, like, nice name. Isn't that why, like, Ocean City, not Ocean City, um, um, Atlantic City, like, smells because of the trash dump in Staten Island? I am not sure. Probably. I, I think so. Like, it's gross. Yeah. Well, Dan, like, we went to New York, and we were driving out of New York. I guess, like, when we drove in, it was, like, during the day, so that there was, like, a ton of cars, so maybe we just didn't notice it as much. But, like, we left early in the morning just so we could get, like, not get stuck in traffic, and... When we drove past, like, where Staten Island was, like, the smell. I was like, I could not live anywhere near really? that smelled anything like this. It, yeah. It was disgusting. Yeah, but I bet, like, the people who do live on Staten Island, like, they've been around it for so long, they don't they don't even smell it anymore. No, I 100% believe that's true. But that just means, like, I don't ever want to <laughs> be around someone in Staten Island that doesn't know what stinks. Like, could you imagine their B.O.? <laughs> so i get it like it at first they started like cropsy was an urban legend and i actually like wasn't sure how they were gonna like go with it because i've heard of cropsy i'd never watched it before oh but i thought it was more like yeah i i'd i had wanted to watch it but like i just i don't know why i never Uh did well i think it was on hulu and then it went away for a while and so then i forgot about it is probably what mm-hmm. happened. But um I kind of thought it was more like just the urban legend like they didn't have like a suspect or you know like they nothing had been confirmed for some reason. But um Cropsy was an escaped mental patient who lived in the tunnels beneath the old abandoned Willowbrook Mental Institution, which is a nightmare and in and of itself. Do you watch American Horror Story? No. Well, so Willowbrook and everything they said about it just made me think of that one season that they did the like asylum of that show. But if you don't watch it, you don't know. Yeah, what I'm I can't about. watch that stuff. It's too scary for me. I, I don't do well with scary movies. Oh, that's a shame. It's a really good show. Yeah, no. Um, so Cropsy would come out late at night and snatch children off the streets. Sometimes Cropsy would have a hook for a hand. Other times he wielded a bloody axe and he was out there looking for children lurking in the darkness. So, I mean, it kind of does sound like your typical urban legend about like, you know, don't go out after dark to kids like, or bad things will happen. Um, but I mean, Obviously, some of it's true, some of it's not. I don't think it was, like, lurking for children in the darkness. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
Staten Island is one of the five boroughs of New York City. Like, New York City is, like, bigger than most states, it seems. Yeah, it probably is. Um, For the past century, the island was mostly just farmland and woods. In 1964, they built the Verrazano Bridge, and now it's home to more than half a million people. And so Staten Island had been used by the mob to dump bodies, and it had... One of the largest garbage dumping sites in the world. You could see it from space. Like, like what could you see? No pros. Like you could, like you could, like if you were looking at the the Earth, like you know where it's like blues and greens, and then like beiges. Like you could see a different color that was the ew, ew. right. And um, it's at the center of Staten Island is a section of ancient forest known as the Greenbelt. And so bordering the forest is a Boy Scout camp and an old tuberculosis ward, which gross. Like, could you imagine? Like, we think this is bad. Like, could you imagine what it was like tuberculosis? Just like people in like bed coughing up blood. Just, yeah, just like wall to wall. So kids would roam the forest, scaring each other with stories of Cropsy. Um, it looked very creepy. Like abandoned buildings are just super creepy, and I just feel like like you know bad things. Yeah, there you can't even. I when I see an abandoned building or house or whatever, like the chills that run through my body. Yeah, because you know you're gonna end up on the oxygen <laughs> network in an episode of Snatched or something. <laughs> Oh my god. It's like like so like it makes me think of like Blair Witch Project when they found that abandoned house and then they went Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. I thought that I, I think I wrote that somewhere yeah. in here. Like that that's the kind of stuff that it makes me think of. Or like um or um what is that movie? It's not wrong turn. The hills have no, eyes. I don't know. It's the one where Jessica Beale's in it, and in the beginning, her and her Texas Chainsaw. Yes, that's a good movie. But it's yeah, scary. like in the beginning where they find that person and they, the person is like freaking out and they get in the car and then they start driving towards that house and the person starts freaking out like, "Don't drive that way! Don't drive that way!" And then they like jump out of the car. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, that that movie was creepy. Yeah, and then she like saves that baby. Yeah, I might have to see if they have that on any of our streaming things because I might want to watch oh, it again. God, <laughs> I can't. I can't watch. I le- legit can't watch scary movies. Like, if I go, oh, it's been a long time since I, like I've been to the movie theater, but like even pre COVID, but like. If I go to a movie theater and watch a movie, when a scary movie, when I come home, I, like, run into the house because I'm always afraid that, like, whatever the character was in that in that scary movie that I just watched is going to, like, come after me. Yeah, and get you between, like, the car yeah. and the house. Yeah, I can't. I can't, like. No, and there's sometimes, like, I, I remember, I think the first, like. I'd seen scary movies like like 
Nightmare on Elm Street, like the kind of slasher where it's not really like creepy. Yeah, that's just like jumping and like. Yeah. But then I can't, I was probably like 11 or 12 when I watched The Exorcist, I want to say. I And I had to, like, I had to stay up and watch like two hours of cartoons just to like calm down. I don't think I've ever seen all of The Exorcist. I've seen parts of it. But like the movie that did that to me was Carrie. Oh, you know, I guess it didn't. Well, yeah, no, it did. There were some things that were like, Ooh. yeah, like the way her mom yeah. was. And then like the way she made the house like telepathically like tumble on like, like crumble in on itself and killed them both. Like, and the way she looked after she got covered in blood and she like killed everybody in the gym. Like, no, oh, yeah, no. No, say I do like I do like the scary. Like it, I have to like, you know, read like something happy or like watch something happy sometimes after. But like, I love scary books too because I think books are way scarier than the movies. But that's probably because like you're imagining it in your head, so it's like kind of catered to you. Yeah, but still, Ugh. yeah. I what what did we see Reese? Oh, misery. Oh, I that watch misery. Crazy. That one doesn't bother me. <clears throat> when she hobbles his well, I think it's like the the breaking of bones and but like that's like like hostile and like saw. It's hard for me to watch because like yeah, it's gory. I have a hard time, like, watching. And the older I get, the worse I am about it. Like, when I was younger, I used to be able to, like, watch, like, bones break and not, like, think anything. And now I'm, like, mm-hmm. half in tears. But um, Willowbrook was strictly for mentally ill people. Um, and it said, Willowbrook State School was the subject of an investigative documentary-type film in 1972 by Geraldo Rivera. He wrote Classy. <laughs> So Dr. Michael Wilkins from the Willowbrook staff spoke to Geraldo. The doctor had invited Geraldo to see the conditions he was talking about. So, of course, Geraldo shows up unannounced and unexpectedly, and he toured building number six. It was horrible. And I I said, so is his video. There was one attendant for perhaps 50 severely and profoundly um mentally ill children the place looked like a nightmare some children were lying on the floor naked like smeared with poop oh like i would have been a horrible nurse i'd be like for no i'm not i can't can't be in the room with that could you oh no kids are just wailing and well first of all i feel like you would go straight to hell if you worked in a place well if you let the kids like live in the conditions that they did yeah well yeah that's what i'm saying like i that like i it shocks me that people can be that like Mm -hmm. cruel and i'm not even a nice person so that's saying a lot um like the kids were just like wailing and groaning like you just it just sounded miserable and like it's super disturbing like this is it like actual footage it's not like a recreation 
And Geraldo's like, I can show you what it looks like. You can hear what it sounded like. But the smell was a bitch. Like, he's like, I can't explain what it smells like. He said it smelled of disease and death. And I wrote, no (laughs) fucking thanks. So, despite Geraldo's report and the video it still took 10 years before the authorities began shutting down willowbrook which seems insane many of the children went to group homes but others were left to fend for themselves so there are those that believe that some patients out of confusion and habit returned to the 365 acres of willowbrook to roam the abandoned buildings and live in the tunnel system that lay underneath and that's how the crop okay, so legend was born. So some of the children were left to fend for themselves. So they just like opened the door and said, go. Basically. And 365 acres, that sounds huge. That's just of Willowbrook. So what in the world? Like how big is Staten Island? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that. I mean, I don't know why I wondered it like that seriously, but people started believing that Cropsey was real after children in Staten Island started disappearing. So they show a news report about a search for a 12 year old girl with Down syndrome. Um, and she had been missing with three or for three weeks. And her name was Jennifer Schwager. Um, she disappeared on July 9th, 1987. And her mother, Karen, describes her as very pretty and very happy. And so a bunch of people had shown up to search for Jennifer and, um, you know, they just couldn't like find anything. Um, so one of the people that was at Willowbrook was Andre Rand. Um, now it says Andre worked as an orderly at Willowbrook state school from 1966 to 1968. And for years, he lived in numerous makeshift campsites in the woods surrounding Willowbrook. So I guess he wasn't a patient there, but he worked there. So Andre Rand was a suspect in the Jennifer Schwager case. Two witnesses had stated that they saw Jennifer walking along the street with a middle-aged man, and he had a female green bike with a basket on the front of it. So Ralph Aquino and Bobby Jensen are retired um, NYPD detectives and like they just couldn't even be bothered to sit up straight at all. Like they were just like leaning over, like they did not get dressed up for their interview in the slightest. So Bobby says that when he heard those details, he thought of Andre Rand. The week before, Bobby saw Andre in Shoprite, and Bobby recognized him from one of their prior cases. And Bobby saw him get on a green female bike with a basket on the front. So Rand was immediately brought in and questioned in the girl's disappearance, but was released due to a lack of evidence. And after four weeks of surveillance, in hopes of finding Jennifer alive, he was arrested. So Rand had previously pled guilty to sexual misconduct with a nine-year-old. And it's like, why? Like, that's so gross. Some lady says he denied committing the crime. And I'm not sure that she understands what pleading guilty means because you admitted to it. Um, They taped Rand's perp walk and he looked insane. He reminds Charles Manson. He was like... 
Yeah, he, yes. They were showing pictures of him drooling. I thought he reminded me of, um, do you remember that Sling Blade movie, the Billy Bob Thornton? I can't remember the guy's name. But it reminded me of, he's like this, I don't know. Look it up later. Like, I think you'll understand the second you see a picture of him as Sling Blade. So, Jim Callahan, former editor of the Staten Island Eagle, which sounds like a fake paper, sounds says that he used to teach a journalism class. And I'm like, where? Like, is was this like a part of like Arnold Friedman's computer class of horrors? He would use the picture of Andre Rand's perp walk and that case as subject material. Um, he says Andre Rand coming down the courtroom steps with a headline: "Drifter arrested." And he says, what does that mean? Guilty. Whether he is or not, I don't know the whole story either, but it's a lot easier to do it that way than to say, you know what? It might be somebody on your block. It might be somebody that you work with. And I wrote, okay, well, it's very shocking that the New York Times or the Washington Post had not scooped him up. Um, Former NYPD detectives, um, Bobby and Ralph, they're being interviewed and they look like they're on the set of the king of queens (laughs) and bobby's clothes look tight (laughs) so rand had been held for 26 hours and the detectives didn't know where jennifer was for the period of time that rand was in jail there were rumors that someone else a friend of andre rand's or something was hiding jennifer and moving her in the tunnel system um, in the middle of the night underneath Willowbrook. So despite constant threats from state officials to stay away, search parties and friends and family of Jennifer kept going back. You know, volunteers um, would search all the time. The police detectives had searched, like dogs had searched. And then this guy noticed a small area where the ground looked disturbed. He showed other people the location and he you know, wanted their opinion. And he said the smell was awful once he started digging. Eventually they uncovered Jennifer's toes and everybody stopped and a priest gave Jennifer last rites. And that is terrible. And so Jennifer's body was discovered 150 yards from Rand's campsite. And so residents were outraged. Um, The district attorney did not have any physical evidence that could tie Jennifer's murder to rand it was almost all eyewitness testimony which most experts agree it's often reliable um so it was the largest criminal trial in staten island history and rand was found guilty of kidnapping but the murder charge was dismissed because the jury couldn't reach a verdict he was sentenced to 25 years to life and would be eligible parole for parole in 2008 now it did seem weird to me that like they'd searched and searched and they never saw anything and then all of a sudden you know one day this guy you know moves the earth or whatever you know like notices this patch and then they find her but I don't I mean I guess it's pretty much accepted that he did it like but I thought they were going to say, like, maybe he didn't, like, that maybe he was set up, like, it was strategically placed, like, by his, like, if the police really thought that they had him, but they didn't have the evidence. So then they tried to, 
you know, like bury the body close to where they knew he stayed and they, you know, did it after people had already been out and searched. Cause you would think that like, if, as soon as they started digging, it smelled bad that like the canine dogs. Yeah. And then somebody did say that they thought he was set up. Oh, I guess one of his friends, like that guy talked restaurant. Oh, that's right. But he just, it seemed like he just got dismissed. Like, it seemed they were just like, "Uh uh-huh, okay, yeah. Like, they didn't really care. And it did, I think, well, I guess I'll find out when I get to my note, but, like, I feel like it seemed like the cops were already like, oh, whatever, you're, you know, like, you're talking nonsense. And never even looked into it. But, um... So Staten Island had been used as a dumping ground for all sorts of things, um, like mob bodies and trash. Um, the Fresh Kills, which seems like an unfortunate name, landfill, took all the city's garbage and dumped it in Staten Island. So, like, I would imagine, like, Manhattan has a fucking insane mm-hmm. amount of garbage. <laughs> So the farm colony was a place where people went when they had tuberculosis. Willowbrook warehoused thousands of people and left them there. And I I wrote, Jim Callahan is a moron. He's like, Staten Island is where you dump things. Trash, people, mental patients, dead bodies. They all get dumped. Like, he just sounds like he says a lot of stupid sounding things. Teresa Doyle says, it's more about the undercurrent that cannot be tamed by building or organization. You put a bunch of people who are mentally ill and you put a bunch of people that are physically ill and you bury people here and there and you dump garbage and you poison the environment and then you sit around and you scratch your head and you wonder, gee, why are things going wrong? Why is there a chill cast over this Staten Island, this wonderful place? And I wrote, is Staten Island considered a wonderful (laughs) place? I don't know that I would go that far. But I guess most parents thought it was a safe place to raise kids. Now, I don't know if it's just like growing up with our kind of horror movies or whatever. Like, I would not want to live anywhere near a mental institution. Yeah, I just feel like that's scary. Um. So after Donna Katungo and her team found the body of Jennifer Schweiger, the police started connecting the dots to other victims who were who were reported to be missing children that were connected to Jennifer Schweiger. Four years before Jennifer died, Tyhees Jackson went missing. She was 10 years old and had learning disabilities. Um, Hank Aforio went missing when he was 21, but he reportedly had the IQ of a 15 year old, which like, is that a, like, like, that seems like a stretch. I would think that a lot of 21 year old guys have the IQ yeah, of a 15 year old. I was confused by that too. Like, was that actually considered like a, a disability? No, I mean, I think that the, whoever made the movie was just trying to make it seem more like tied together like you were just like grasping a very thin straw Hmm. um like i know men in their 30s and 40s living life like they have the iq of a 15 year old so like i I didn't buy it holly ann hughes went missing at age seven 
Alice Pereira was five years old when she went missing. And Alice went missing 15 years prior to Jennifer's disappearance. And none of their bodies have ever been found. Like, that is, like, Mm -hmm. five years old. And then, like, sometimes when they're saying stuff, like, you know, um, like, you know, Jennifer Schweiger was 12. So, like, it, it makes sense, like, she could be, like, by herself. But I don't know. I feel like, like, I'll let Daniel go in our backyard by himself like he's not getting out of that backyard though like I don't trust kids like I certainly wouldn't be like letting my five year old be outside but then was I outside I don't know I feel like it's, it's different, different now. and I don't think I remember it like correctly like I can't I don't know what I remember yeah. from being a kid yeah I don't know if like we were outside playing like running around the neighborhood when we were five but at 12 definitely yeah, well, and I thought that, and then I was like, well, yeah, I actually do remember, like, riding bikes with, like, friends in my neighborhood, and I do remember, like, being, that age 12 was, like, the first time my mom let me walk up to mm-hmm. Reston Town Center, and, like, with my friends, and go see a movie or whatever, and, but, like, when I look at my kids, I'm like, oh, you are just too little <laughs> for things like that. I don't know. Yeah. It's weird. Uh, well, Daniel, I, I don't trust, so. Yeah, Daniel, like, basically, like, I'm about to get him chipped. <laughs> yeah, like, I think about it, like, now, like, like, how did my parents let me just, like, go drive a car at 16 and go wherever I wanted? Like, I didn't go wherever I wanted. I don't mean mean it like that, but, like, like, why did they even let me do that? <laughs> Well, yeah, but then, and I think that, but then, like, I do the same thing with Emily, but I have, like, 360 on her phone, so she's, like, not right. really. Yeah, like, like you always know where she's at. We didn't have that stuff when we were, when we were. Well, yeah, and, but I, and I think that that would be the only, like, the only way I would be okay with her driving, but I think it's just one of those things, like, you know, you have to do it, so you hate it, but you, like, just do it. Yeah, like you probably worried. That's probably why like moms were always so like yeah. nervous. But so after spending seventeen years in jail, Andre Rand returned to Staten Island to stand trial for the kidnapping of Holly Ann Hughes two decades prior. So Holly Ann Ann's brothers spoke out about the loss of their sister and how they felt like she'd been treated as if she was not even really a person, like it was the equivalent of a lost wallet. Um, and so they were obviously really hurt by that and um holly ann was described as being a warm little girl a typical seven-year-old and that's what her dad peter said he said it was the last thing that he worried about like somebody taking her it just had never occurred to him and she disappeared in 1981 so i feel like stranger danger wasn't really like a thing because I feel like it was, like, the stuff that happened in the late 70s and early 90s or early 80s that people started yeah. being, like, don't go with people, you know. Um, the mother, he's, oh, yeah, he says the mother. And I was, like, the mother, like, you can't even say her name. He's, like, the mother and I weren't conversing at the time in a proper way because we were having a little custody <laughs> problem there during that separation period it's like oh so separation period like there have been multiple of them that sounds happy 
Peter says he searched all night trying to think of anywhere she could have gone, and he started getting bizarre phone calls. People call and say that they knew where Holly Ann was, stuff like that, and nobody nobody ever mentioned Andre ran to him. I would be furious if my kid disappeared and somebody's going to, like, call and leave weird, like, messages or, like, say things when I answer. Although, I never answer my phone unless I know who it is. It's like, if you think you're going to call me and, like, you, like we're not that tight, you better text me first and be like, I'm about to, like, call you from a different number. Rand was interviewed and released back in 1981 after being spotted on Holly Ann Street the day that she disappeared. So 20 years later, the DA finally had enough evidence and a strong enough case to finally take it to trial, which that seems unlikely. There was another issue that concerned local residents because Andre Rand would be up for parole like four years later. So he may walk the streets again. So they were worried. I mean, I like I find that kind of weird that 20 years later, people like the community was that afraid of him. Not that like if I heard about it, I probably would be. But I probably wouldn't be like, oh, you know what? Like, let me check my calendar. When is that dude getting out of prison? And like, I mean, just because you're right. up for parole doesn't mean you're going to get it. So Karen Schweiger attended the hearing in support of Holly Ann Hughes's family. Um, John O'Brien is a reporter for the Staten Island Advance. Like these all sound like fake newspapers. And he says that cases like this don't go away. The community always still feels it, which I guess to an extent I could understand like like the community would be like over like telling these stories like they're urban legends but i don't i I don't think it'd be this like active fear like they're acting like it is well i wouldn't expect it to be but i don't know it's also different when it's involving children like people get Mm -hmm. way more scared and um so john um Oh, so John O'Brien says that the media had painted Andre Rand as a monster. And, like, he definitely yeah, he did look crazy like he with some like sort of an institution. coming out of his mouth and everything. Ew. Yeah, it was... I don't... That's very weird. And, um... John O'Brien says there's no physical or scientific evidence that I know of in this case. There's no body. They haven't found her. It's all circumstantial. The entire time he's talking, did yeah. you notice he was eating? And I was like, can you like finish yeah, your I noticed fucking that. hot dog like, and then talk to them? A bite of like a hot dog and then like, it's, like talking to this documentary film crew. Well, well, and the other thing that's super annoying is, you know, they scheduled this. It's not like it was like, oh, I ran into you on the street and like, can I get your hot take on like some new thing? Yeah. Like you, you scheduled it with him specifically. <laughs> that, it did annoy me. I was like, why are you eating? And so Larry Simon and Twain Felton were Andre Rand's defense team. And, you know, obviously they're saying they're completely confident that he didn't commit those murders because they've searched and searched, not found any evidence to tie him to those crimes. 
Larry Simon guesses that the DA decided to pursue this case because he's about to retire and wants to put this case to bed before he leaves the DA's office. Um, I mean, I guess. William Murphy, district attorney, says, I remember the inadequacies of the witnesses' statements from back then in 1981 and 1982. Some of them were out-and-out alcoholics who just didn't have clear recollections of what was going on from day to day, but in recovery, their memories were improved. He said, that sounds weird and unlikely. He makes some statement about staying vigilant and staying concerned about what's going on. And I wrote, I might fall asleep. He sounds stupid. Like, please tell me that you have more evidence and testimony from a bunch of alcoholics in recovery. Like, for real? He keeps going. The fact that the Andre Rand story is being told is simply an example of what can be done if people remain vigilant, remain concerned about what's going on around them. And I said, I don't know about all that, buddy. So for for years, Rand had been shuffled around various New York state prisons where he shared cell cell blocks with the likes of David Berkowitz, who was the son of Sam, and child killer Joel Steinberg. He had been moved to Rikers Island for his upcoming trial, and the filmmakers kept sending him requests for interviews, but he never responded. So they decided to visit Andre Rand unannounced, and I wrote, can you even do that? I feel like you have to be on, like, a list, and you have to get, like, vetted through, and they have to, like, run your name through a system. I don't think you can just show up and be like, hey, Is that when they showed him going into prison? The prison? Um... I think they went in. They didn't get to talk to him, but like, well, I like thought it there was, was that one interview that they were, they were supposed to. to get from him. Like he had said that he. Oh, okay. yeah, no, that that wasn't that time. Yeah, where he kept telling mm-hmm. people they could have like interviews, and then he's like, "Never mind, I don't feel like it." Um. So they were surprised because for oh, sorry. So one day they received a letter from Andre Rand and they were surprised because for years he only spoke to his attorneys. He never spoke to the press. So Andre put their phone number at the top and writes, person answering the call should be Joshua. If you want to receive bulk mailings from Mr. Rand over the next few months, it will need to be done by sending Rand a legal mailing address. This is not so much as correspondence, but more in the form of documentation. Note, Rand was informed by his attorney to accept only legal visits. Rand will not speak to you in person anytime soon because of possible subpoena. So he's basically saying he would communicate with them as long as they play by his rules. Like he just didn't want to do it in person. So I don't. I, I don't know if they're saying a possible subpoena of them because I would think if he sent them yeah, letters, like, I guess if he said like subpoena. the wrong thing in the letter then they could use them against him and he's just counting on the fact that like he probably would have yeah. his attorneys read yeah, it to make sure that wanted to like control the narrative weird yeah well yeah i mean i do think he was like messing with them but I don't know. And I guess maybe if he's doing things via mail like the prison checks it but like the other like the prosecution might not know that he's getting mail from somebody, but they'll know if someone visited because it'll be on the. Well, they like might know because they probably the, check. The prison guards read everything that comes into the prison. 
you know, I don't know if they have to document when somebody gets a letter. I know that a lot of the, I know that. Every well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think the prison people read it, but that doesn't like the prosecution isn't definitely, isn't necessarily going to know what, who, who's mailing him what mm -hmm. and when, or what it, you know, what it is and stuff. Because obviously if it was something that's like big, then they would pass it along to, you know officials but like you know if if it's all this like just random little like transcripts mm -hmm. or whatever it is that he's talking about letters so new york state doesn't allow cameras in their courtrooms which i'm surprised that i don't true. know maybe is it still true um so they would be forced to interview many witnesses out on the street or get all the information secondhand. Well, can't they go in even if your camera's not allowed in there? You can sit in there. Yeah, yeah. Trials I guess public. like if um, I well, I don't know how their legal system is, but you know, on a lot of documentaries I've seen, like especially like big trials, like there's always like a lottery. Like remember when people were trying to the anthem trial and stuff? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I yeah. I don't know. I just thought, like, you could probably still yeah. sit in there. Because I do think the press is allowed to sit in there. They're just not allowed to tape it. But so, he's, Andre Rand is basically the Staten Island boogeyman. And they show an old photo of a building, and we're told that it was the building where Holly and Hughes used to live. So, Andre Rand's aunt used to live on the second floor of that building also. Holly was outside playing one day, and Andre was there visiting his aunt. So then he got in his Volkswagen and apparently Holly walked down a street to a deli. That's where she was last seen. A clerk said she came in at 930 on a Wednesday night with 27 cents and bought a bar of soap. And I know for a fact yeah, that my I bedtime was about way that, earlier than 930. Was, was Holly I, seven? So they were letting a seven-year-old seven walk down the street in, what, 1981? Yeah, at 9.30 at night. And I get that it's, like, if it's summer, because it was in July, right? So, like, it stays light yeah. later. But I feel like 9.30 is very late. And I said, and I doubt I was allowed to be out and about at age seven. I said, and well, who buys I think deli soap at a deli? for them is more, like, convenience store slash place to get food. Deli. So, they interviewed Jimmy... I don't, I'm not even going to try to say his last name, who was the clerk at that deli, and he saw Holly Ann Hughes that night that she disappeared. He says she went to buy a bar of soap, and the bar of soap was 31 cents. Why do I remember? Because she was short four cents, and the old man behind the counter, he wouldn't give it to her. That's why I remembered when I seen his picture. And I said, yeah, I've seen that guy before. He's a quiet guy to himself. He don't look right. I think he talked with a speech impediment, but I'm not sure. He's asked if anyone else ever disappeared from that neighborhood. And he says, yeah, Hank Gaforio looked just like Mick Jagger. Like, I was like, okay, guy. He was, um, he disappeared from the neighborhood around the same time. He was a little slow. And his brother swears that Andre Rain killed him. So Hank disappeared in 1984. Um, so Hank was supposedly at the diner at three or four in the morning with Rand. A handful of people come forward. And in one of the news reports about Holly Ann Hughes in 1981, 
you can actually see Hank Gaforio in the background. So um, one of the retired detectives, Ralph, says that there were too many coincidences and he just wants Rand to tell people where the bodies are buried. And I wrote, good luck with that. So Andre Rand had sent the filmmakers a bunch of documents. And one of the documents is a copy of an officer's testimony with Rand writing remarks or clarifying what things they said that were incorrect. Um, So Elsie Castro testified that she lived across the street from where Holly Ann lived on Elsie's side of the street, but one house up, there was a green Volkswagen. She didn't see anyone in the green Volkswagen. She goes into her house to take a shower and discovers that there's no soap. Dwayne Felton said that she saw nothing, but she claims she bought a bar of soap at the store and was five cents short. Larry Simon says it's very coincidental that she was a nickel short when Holly Ann was reportedly a nickel short as well all within the time span about of about an hour. And I said, why does that matter? But I guess they were trying to say that, like, she heard the story. Oh, and was trying to yeah, I didn't understand that. Um, so they speculated that Elsie misremembered things. And I, at first, I didn't really get why it was relevant. But that was the only thing I could think of, was that, like, they were trying to say, like, well, she's just taking, like, details she's heard over the years and now mm-hmm. inserting it to make herself relevant so christine gosling detective sergeant missing person squad long-term cases nypd and i wrote what the fuck that is the longest job title i think i've ever seen but she says that all of the crimes that we've seen that we seem to link him to all took place in july with the exception of ty Heath or tia or Ty. Ty lived with her mom and four other siblings, and they were all in one room in the Concadoro. I don't know what that is. Well, it was a welfare hotel at the time, which I'd never heard of a welfare hotel, but it's basically temporary housing. Like, if you can't afford to, like, go, and yeah. I guess if there's room, maybe it's discount. I don't know. But she says it was an August day, and the older brother left Ty talking to a man who looked like Andre. She's never been seen again. The evidence is the bodies. And she's like, I'm sure buried somewhere. He's got the evidence. We just haven't found it in the woods yet. Um, so Donna and Luis Rivera go with a canine dog to sniff around one of Rand's old campsites. And Luis is a retired detective. And I mean, like, he tells us his well I guess yeah he says the dog has found dead bodies 22 years later because I was like well why does it even matter now but um, so he keeps coming back out and concentrating on small areas at a time and so Detective Frank says is one of the foremost experts on the cold cases of New York City's missing children so Frank believes the bodies are buried somewhere on Staten Island like that seems like a very like everybody else has already come to that conclusion frank the filmmaker says to frank that they say the death of a child is the worst but possible crime that anyone can ever imagine and frank says absolutely but the missing of a child is even worse because if your child dies and you bury him or her then at least you have a place that you know you can go to when your child disappears and you don't know where the child is to a parent, a child is never dead until an officer can actually bring the remains to them, Mm -hmm. which is probably very true because you would always be hoping to get a call that your child is dead. 
um, I mean, that your child is alive or have them walk in your home. But like, if you know that your child is dead, like you have the closure, Mm -hmm. but I think most people would still want the hope. I don't know. It's awful either way. So John and Louise find items like a kid's shoe, tape, shampoo, and the ground is soft. Like, they're okay, people. It's like 22 years later. Like, if if the ground is soft and they found those items, I highly doubt it's from Andre Rand. Like, what year were those shoes made? Holly Ann's brother, Ed Armstrong, took the stand. He was 14 years old the last time he saw his sister on the day that she died. Ed Armstrong, which, how does he know what day she died? I thought she was just missing. So Ed Armstrong became a lieutenant in the New York Police Department. He was also instrumental in bringing this case to trial. Ed only wants the remains of his sister. He says he doesn't care if Andre Rand gets one day added to a sentence. So he hopes that Rand will do the right thing. Like, again, good luck. I don't think that this guy cares. There was a theory that Jennifer had been killed somewhere else and later buried where she was found because she was found to be buried head down, but blood had pooled by her feet it also led them to believe that other people were involved there were rumors that Rand didn't act alone that he had help from one of the homeless or a former patient from willowbrook others thought that he was framed and that the real killer was still out there the only person who knew the truth was rand himself the filmmakers had been exchanging letters with rand and were hoping to get an interview but he refused to give them any information He felt all the unwanted attention would expose the nature of his suspected crimes, which, what? But his handwriting was really good. Oh, he didn't want um, other inmates to find out what his crimes were and put his life in jeopardy. So the filmmakers tried to track down people that knew Rand. So the filmmakers tried to track down people that knew Rand and... Like, this guy's a tool. He knocks on someone's door, and whoever he asked for doesn't live there. And he's all like, are you sure? I thought he lived here. Did he used to live here? Like, I cannot do that. Like, first, I hate talking to people. Like, I hate having to knock on someone's door. And, like, I really hate when someone knocks on mine. Like, I was just sitting here waiting for you to come try to sell me a fucking ShamWow. Like like when like does that really ever work i feel like i would be like no i'm busy so thomas jenkins talks to them he was six or seven back then so who even knows which kid he's talking about at this point thomas says he was outside the ymca playing and a bus pulled up and a guy asked him if they wanted to go on a trip thomas says we all hopped in the bus we didn't know no better we were just little kids He said he was going to take us to the park and we round up in Newark airport. So then after that, he took us somewhere in some park, which was pitch black. I think it was Willowbrook park. We were all running around playing hide and seek and everything. Come to find out we were being kidnapped and we didn't even have a clue what what was going on. I think he attempted something that he couldn't accomplish and it dawned on him. I can't do this. I can't do it like this. Let me take my steps. Yeah. Which... That's crazy. And like, I'm glad we grew up with the stranger danger because my <laughs> sister would have been gone. What, kidnapped you? Did you know that someone tried to do that to us? No. Uh huh. When we were kids, someone tried to get us in a van. We were playing outside in front of our house in our neighborhood. It, like, it, 
Well, I don't know if you remember. It was like almost like yeah, a cul- it was a cul de sac, but it almost looked like a figure eight or like a big eight. And so, like we were allowed to play, like we the upper part we called the upper court, and the lower part the lower court. So, like we were allowed to play out front, like as long as, as like when my mom like came to the like oh as we got older we could go up but I feel like when Mary was outside we had to stay Uh to the lower court a lot of the time until we got a little bit older but so um they pulled up like they were like you know in that little like curve like to turn around and like they rolled the window down and we were playing with this girl Andre who lived a couple houses down and they try to get our attention, and I don't even remember what they initially said. And I feel like, like we were maybe like eight or nine, and so Mary was either like six or seven. And so they said something like, "Do you guys want to see something cool?" And so I didn't move, and neither did Andrea. Mary was closer to them, but she didn't move then. But then the people kept being like, "Oh, we have candy, we have puppy." Like I don't remember everything they said. But, like, they were saying stuff like that. So, Mary Uh starts taking, like, walking forward like she's going to go. And so, I mean, she wasn't that much farther away from us. But, like, what her doing that, like, made me, like, be like, ah, well, I think we need to go. So, I yelled for Mary to get in the house. And the three of us, like, ran inside my house. And I remember I was, like, worried I was going to get in trouble because Andrea ran in with us. And my parents were like, you cannot invite your friends in unless you ask us. And I was all like, I'm sorry if I'm going to get in trouble about this. And my mom's like, wait, Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, they had to, like, call the police and everything. Yeah. But, I mean, it really wasn't scary because, like, they didn't get out of the car or anything. But, like, I do remember, like, I was like, this is weird. <laughs> like, this seems like a movie. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I wasn't really scared. I mean, I really was more scared I was going to get in trouble mm-hmm. for Andrea coming in the house than I was about being kidnapped. That's for damn sure. But, like, now being a parent, yeah. I can't. I would have cried if I were my mom. Yeah, probably. And she probably did, honestly. But, I mean, like, I, and I don't remember them calling, like, the police. I'm sure they asked us a question. Like, I don't remember it being, like, a big thing. But some residents believe that Andre Rand was guilty. But there were other people who believed that he was innocent. So the filmmaker spoke spoke with Thomas McColl, who worked with Rand, and he says that some say that Rand was framed because they combed that area and found nothing, and then after they arrested Rand, they combed it again and found Jennifer Schweiger's body very easily. That whoever did do it moved the body to frame Rand, which yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I guess that's what you were talking about earlier, and um. I mean, I, they are just so yeah, like, but it you does know, seem they never kind did of, like, say like once me. he was, um, once Rand was arrested, like if the kidnapping stopped or anything like that. They never touched on that, which is always to me like an interesting fact. Well, yeah, like you exactly. would know, like well, like none and of that has happened since he's been in jail. Yeah. So, yeah, but they don't say it. 
So Bob Graham, Graham, who was an acquaintance of Rand, said, I thought they were just trying to pin it on somebody and they were going to blame him because he was this loner and he kind of looked a little scary. Bob Graham had once been a suspect in Jennifer's disappearance. And so I think the police like also immediately like discounted Mm -hmm. anything he was saying because they thought he was a suspect. Bob says that Andre Rand lived in a Volkswagen in the weeds at Willowbrook. And Bob knew about the tunnel network under Willowbrook State School. It was set up like a hub with spokes. From the cafeteria, you could get to every ward. Rand could survive down there because he had worked there at one time. A lot of people were living in the woods, not just Rand. The filmmakers go to explore there and find evidence that people were living down there. Like, that's so scary. I mean, I guess if you're homeless, and like, especially if you're homeless and mentally ill, like, yeah, but I like, guess it's probably like, less what I don't scary. But is like, they had a shit ton of people living underground. Like, is that just like a thing? Like, that was just like something that everyone on Staten Island accepted. I well, guess. I get that. Well, probably no one wanted to go out there. I don't know. Like, it's like, like it's like very weird. It's also weird to me, like, look, like, I don't understand people that will stay in places like New York when it's cold, like, go to Florida or someplace where it's, like, less, like, like, South Carolina or yeah. something. I, I don't know. I just, like, I did uh, find it weird, and, like, I think I did even make a note about it. No, I didn't. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was weird that, like, it was just accepted that like a shit oh no i did i did make a note um it was just accepted that a shit ton of people lived underground it was like just one of those things like oh yeah we have people that live underground here like okay glenn chapman who was a former reporter says andre Rand had this sort of really low class white trash version of jim jones going on somehow he managed to get people to follow him and it's like what Tracy Begley says they found little girl's panties down there. Okay. Detective Leonard D'Alessandro says, I think that he was passing the children around to his friends who were just as sick as he was. Francis Arardi doesn't believe that Rand could have committed his crimes alone. Bobby Jensen and Ralph Aquino heard a bunch of stories that they couldn't prove one way or another. They heard he had sex yeah. with dead bodies. That's disgusting. Dead bodies and have sex with them. The rumor was that, yeah, that he used yeah. to dig them up. Oh, that's disgusting. And I find that hard to believe. Like that, that's not going to feel good. A cemetery. Like, who can dig an entire grave, pry open the casket, bone the dead body, put it back, fill the grave yeah. back up, and no one notices? That's fine. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> You're doing that all in one night? I'm real sharp. To those who even remotely knew, knew Rand, say that he was a complete mystery. Like, I don't know about mystery as much as nightmare. The more the filmmakers tried to learn about him, the more bizarre the stories got. He was be- it was becoming harder for them to tell the difference between the facts and the folklore. And, like this part, like sometimes when he talked too much, like Justin or Joshua or whatever his name was, like I was like, okay, I'm gonna fall asleep if he doesn't stop talking so much. Um, 
like it's an interesting topic but it was something about the way he talked so the trial begins and the prosecution is once again relying primarily on eyewitness testimony to prove its case some of those who testified were former alcoholics or drug addicts who now say they can recall the details of that night over 20 years ago and see that like eyewitness testimony is kind of iffy but like when someone is good at telling a story like that would be very convincing to me but John Burns was someone who changed his story back and forth, but basically he's drinking. He sees Holly Ann. He sees Rand talking to Holly Ann. He was the first person to put Rand next to Holly Ann, but he didn't come forward in 17 years. So his attorney, Dwayne Felton, says that was the main part of their cross-examination, was pointing out like, okay, well, this all this happened, mm-hmm. but you didn't remember it until like 17 years later. Um. Other witnesses could could provide only vague details. Um, Martha Hinton says, you didn't want to meet him, Rand. He was a creep. The filmmaker asks her why, and she says, because he looked like he was a killer. And I was like, well, not, that's real nice. Like, that's a convincing testimony there. Well, he looked like, he looked like it, okay? He did it. He killed them. Look at him. Like, she, why, why would you even call someone as a witness if that's their testimony? You would think they would prepare her for testifying. Like, I don't, I think attorneys, like, will mm-hmm. ask you a billion times if you, they're going to put you on the stand. So Martha says, on the night Holly Ann disappeared, she heard a scream and heard Holly Ann say, let me go. Which, like, how do you know it was her? Retired detective um, Frank Marchione says, we had people that held back information that we're finding out today that were drug addicts, dope dealers. Frank says they needed to put her in the car, but they didn't have any witnesses that could put her in the car back then. Tanya Goodson says that Rand pulled up in a little green car and asked if they wanted candy. She went to go get it. She put her arm in the car as he opened up the door, and that's the last I've ever seen of her. The filmmaker says, in a surprising turn of events, Tanya Goodson was called to the stand. Tanya was a playmate of Holly Ann's who was six at the time. Tanya testified that she saw Rand wearing a mask, holding candy, pull Holly Ann into his car. Tanya says she can't remember what the mask looked like and his whole face was covered. Tanya's hair looks like a braided mullet. Tanya said that he looked scary. Like that, how did, for one second, did you believe any of what she said? Like, and she's all like, I know a bunch of people he kidnapped. And the reporter's like, Hank Gaffario. And she's like, that one, I didn't know. I knew Letitia, which her name is Tyhese Jackson, lady. And Tanya says, yes. Tanya says she never really thought anything about children disappearing because she was too young. And probably because it didn't happen. As Well, the children disappeared. She had no knowledge of it. As Rand is being let out of the courthouse to go back to jail, someone yells, what do you have to say to the the Staten Island community? And Rand replies, they are perpetrators of a fraud. Like, okay, why are you even saying anything? Alice Pereira disappeared on July 7th of 1972. Alice had lived with her mother who had multiple sclerosis. 
So Andre Rand was the maintenance man for that building that Alice and her mother lived in. And Alice's parents were separated at that time and had been separated for about three years. So detectives initially suspected that Alice's father had kidnapped Alice because of that. So they didn't focus on the child being kidnapped by some deviant, according to Alice's aunt Rita. She says they just want closure and she feels like everybody forgot about Alice. So Andre wrote to Barbara, which was one of the filmmakers, and said, you know that I cannot answer many of your questions at this time. The documentary film you put so much faith into will never stand up to the exculpatory evidence in my book or in my book, I guess. Um, You might mean well, but later other movie makers will pick up where you left off. As long as I'm in prison, I will give the movie makers reason to to portray me as an evil person. You see, evilness sells. That's the name of their game. Josh. Justin, who's... Josh. Was it Justin or Joshua? The other filmmaker. I think I kept messing up his name. Okay, yeah. I don't know why I kept calling him Justin. Says that they needed the interview, but in exchange, Rand wanted them to proclaim his innocence. Um. So Rand was believed to be in the devil's cult, and being a native Staten Islander... Um. Jack couldn't really believe how big it is on Staten Island. Or Leonard said that. Sorry, not Jack. He says, we went to one establishment where the basement was set up like a church and they used to hold their ceremonies on the Willowbrook State School Grounds. Like these all like Mm -hmm. it does sound like they're just like weaving the urban legends into it. Like it sounds like all Mm -hmm. the like Bloody Mary stories that like when they say like urban legend like like you know, all I that think kind of, of like Slenderman. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a more modern urban, like urban legend. I think of like where you know, like the yeah. teenagers are like making out in a car, and like one of them dies. Like those kind of stories, where like the point is kind of to try to get kids or whoever to like to listen. And, like, be afraid of, like, doing something bad instead of, you know, whatever, where it's kind of like, oh, if you're out mm-hmm. at midnight, like, your car is going to be chased down by a deranged mental patient. Like, that kind of, that's what I think of when I think of a urban scare legends, tactic. where it's almost like something that someone took to use as, like, yeah. So, um... Um, Joshua asked Leonard, if you had to convince someone that was real, what would you say? And Leonard replies, I would say get a couple of his friends, sit down and talk to them. And by them just talking, you'll realize how bad it was. Which that still doesn't even make sense. And this is from a retired (laughs) detective. Like, sir, thank God you're retired. Bob Graham says, one time I was invited to the precinct, like invited, to talk to them and as they recorded me and they start telling me about devil worshiping on Staten Island, that maybe he was a part of this cult and I didn't believe it. I'm like, sir, I don't believe yeah, you. No, I got you brought invited in to the precinct to talk. Like that's. Cause I'm wasn't sure. that, wasn't that the guy exactly. that like, he was a, a suspect at um, one time? He goes on and. Was that the guy in the restaurant? Yeah. Bob Graham, yeah. Yeah. He goes on and says, I can't I can take a picture of anybody and I can say this man is a mass murderer. And they'd say, Yeah, I can tell. 
I could say this man rescued six people from a burning building, and they'd yeah, say, I can tell he's a me. good man. So he's very I get what he was saying, but it was like, yeah. No. Yeah, I got his point, but it was like a stupid way to say it. So in addition to the police investigation, other evidence of cult activity had been mailed to Jennifer's family. A mysterious letter claimed that Rand had been supplying children to the Church of the Process, the same cult that David Berkowitz allegedly helped, um, alleged to help commit the Son of Sam murders. So an anonymous letter was traced back to Veronica Lucan, a local woman with her own religious following. A couple of months after Jennifer's disappearance, Joshua reads, I thought I'd write you this note to try and enlighten you at the same time, reassure you about the crimes that are being committed on the island. While I did a little checking and on the recent disappearances and murders of these kids, and it looks like some of them were victims of what is called a satanic black mass. Andre Rand did yeah, not like, kill oh, Jennifer. Okay, all he better. did was bring her to the coven. And I was like, all he did? Um, too bad that they <laughs> covered it up, but who wants to admit that Staten Island is literally going to hell? Like, it's a picnic ground for them. There are bodies buried that will never be found. Like, that's disgusting. I will never even visit Staten Island. I mean, it was slim that I would ever get there anyway, but, like, now, <laughs> for sure, no. They probably are, like, just crawling with COVID. Justin speaks to a lady and asks her what had been said back then. She says Veronica had visions of human sacrifices on a table and that these satanic high priests <laughs> were sticking knives into her. She could have just said stabbed. They believe fully that's what happened, but they will not come forward or be on camera for safety reasons. They're worried about the satanic priests and say that Veronica was on a hit list. She was coming out with all this knowledge they don't want her to come out with. They don't want to be recognized or exposed. So Joshua had a transcript of an interview between Andre Rand and law enforcement when Rand was in the Sing Sing prison. For about a half an hour, they discussed devil worshiping, and he reads from the transcript. So you were camping out when he told you there might be satanic going, goings on in the community in the Willowbrook area. Now it's 1987, and you hear about this cult operating around the same neighborhood um, with human sacrifices. Didn't, didn't you say to yourself, maybe they're the ones that snatched that little girl? Did that occur to you? Joshua asks... Um, retired detective Frank Saez about speaking to Rand on the subject of devil worshipping and Frank says they found out that Andre was in that crowd the founder of the church of the process lives on Staten Island satanic worship tends to be very quiet and it's something that not many departments investigate Frank says it's like being Catholic and I was like excuse me (laughs) because we grew up Catholic like we are nothing like uh freaking like satanic cult but i'm not even really catholic so i didn't even know why i even got offended by that but he says catholics believe in god and satan worships believe in the devil well i think he's like giving the example like even both but okay yeah like yeah like yeah like that catholics pray to god and satanists pray to (laughs) satan Yeah, I got offended way before I even finished his sentence. (laughs) Um, It was said that a lot of of devil worshipping was going on in the area known as the farm colony. So they are looking around. And I wrote, I feel like I'm watching the Blair Witch trial, like the Blair Witch movie. 
they run into a bunch of kids scaring each other out in the woods. And the kids all believe they are devil worshipers. Joshua tells the kids about Jennifer Schweigel. Jo- um, Joshua says maybe the thought of someone killing a child was too hard was to believe. So people the, made up their the own monsters to night. blame it on. Which, okay. Yeah. I don't think yet. So Andre Rand is not going to testify and Barbara is bummed. Like, did you? Yeah. He won't even talk to you. But you thought he was going to get up and talk about this in court? Andre's attorney said that Andre did not testify because he didn't really have much to add and he has a criminal record and a criminal record would distract from this case. Um, Barbara says Rand was disappointed in not taking the stand and wanted the chance to defend himself. Like, okay, whatever. After months of letter writing, he finally decided to give them an interview. And I could not imagine visiting someone in jail. Like, I couldn't even imagine, like, writing a letter to someone in jail. I would be terrified. And then I wrote, could you imagine if well, we you can find their addresses in jail like a watch, database. watch documentaries about? Oh, I know. I mean, I know it's a very popular thing. That's how they all end up getting married to these weird ass ladies. But like, it's still very creepy to me. Like, I don't, I, I feel like that'd be like bad energy on the paper back to you. What if one them. time we tried that, like try to communicate with the person and tell them what we're doing? That was scary. (laughs) Yeah, but if they're in there for life, they would know your address. Oh, yeah. Like people (laughs) have never in life escaped prison or gotten out on weird technicalities. (laughs) Uh -uh, I don't think I could do it. I know I would love uh, like I would love to read the letters. (laughs) I don't want to have anything to do with actually dealing with somebody that's killed people. Could you imagine being a reporter and sitting there like interviewing like oh, Manson? See, I, think that I would, would be have interesting. Like, I would have to like go to church all the time. I think it would be interesting. Rand wrote, "My stand on deviant sex beliefs. Children are emotionally wasted, and the land is littered with broken lives." He wrote a lot about women. They think that maybe he saw things as a child. His father died in 1958 when he was 14 and his mother was in Pilgrim State. So um, Pilgrim State was built exactly to the specs of Willowbrook. Um, Rand writes in his letters that his mother was committed to Pilgrim State Asylum in Long Island. As a teenager, he would often go there to visit with a population that once topped 13,000 patients. Pilgrim State was at times the largest mental institution in the world, much like Willowbrook. Like, that is insane. The filmmakers tracked down Rand's sister, who says, The only contact I ever had with him is when he needed something for me. I don't know anything about his life. Whether he's done it or he hasn't done it, I couldn't tell you. She says that they were not abused or molested as children, and their mom always did have emotional problems, and she tells the filmmakers that she believes they're being manipulated by Rand. And he does seem like he just fucks with people. Like, he reminds me of Hannibal Lecter for some reason. hmm So Joshua gets a voicemail from Rand on Friday, June 20th, and the message is creepy. It's like, hello, Joshua Zaman. This is Andre Rand. I want to know if you've received my letter. It's been about two weeks now. You haven't answered me yet. 
And I said, I mean, I would have a heart attack if um, a killer called me and left <laughs> me a message sounding annoyed. Um, and like, this is why I could never, like, I could, I would have to move and change my number and like probably my name at that point. Um, so they were, um, at the deliberation part of the trial and people are guessing whether or not they think he'll be found guilty. And it seems like people aren't really convinced that there's enough evidence to convict him. Um, so the jury was going to be deliberating over the weekend. So Barbara and Joshua went to see Reverend Musket, a storefront preacher who had housed Rand in the final days before his arrest in 1987. So they knock on this guy's door unannounced um, after a detective finally, like finally revealed his address like that um, sounds illegal. Hmm. Um, and personally, I would say no thank you and not agree to a goddamn interview for sure. Yeah. So he sits down with them, though. So Joshua asks, so Rand was living in your house while he was under suspicion for taking Jennifer. And Reverend Muskin says, yes, it was at the police's own insistence that we took Andre Rand in. They bugged the house. and They had surveillance vehicles sitting on the corner day and night. And... Um, the name of his church is the church of the God within like these all sound like very weird names of churches. Yeah. Reverend Musket says we couldn't tell the community what we were doing because obviously if he, if we did, he would know and leave. So everyone believed that they were his friends. They had been threatened with bodily harm. I would imagine. I'm surprised someone didn't try to burn the house down. Um, he says that Andre Rand told him that he had taken Jennifer and Rand says that he took her because her family didn't want her and that she was alone and he felt that people had mental handicaps and that should and they shouldn't be alive not thinking that people would appreciate or care for somebody who had a mental handicap so like Andre believed that he was kind of doing them like a favor yeah like he's like oh you know I'm, I'm you know putting them out of their misery um, he seemed to think that was part of his mission to cleanse the world of imperfect children in his eyes. And that is sad and terrifying. Yeah. So due to the fact that his mother had some type of mental disability and the fact that he viewed other people that were less than perfect, like as disposable, um, he believed he was sparing children by taking them out. Like I would be very curious to get an idea of what his home was like, like his, I wonder how sick his mom was because clearly whatever his mother was going through traumatized him in many ways and obviously differently than even his sister. Yeah. So like, I wonder if he had something like wrong with him, like her, which then it's like, well, why didn't he just call himself then? But whatever. Um, that, but that would be, um, terrifying to have this fucking man in your house. Um, and so then this reverence is that one of his children, one of his sons is mentally retarded and his name is Chippy. Like, and you lived with the family. Like I would be like, I'm sorry. Like, no, that this can't be possible. Right. So he thought that's kind of what Andre was like attracted to in their family. Like that is terrifying. So, um, 
the reverend believes that Andre is possessed. Like, I'm surprised he's so calm. I feel like I would be, like, I would be, like, PTSD if I had to, like, talk about living with a suspected killer with my mentally handicapped child. Mm -hmm. And this dude is, like, accused of, like, kidnapping and killing handicapped children. And I said, okay, really? I can't with these two retired porch cops slouching (laughs) and their pants are too tight and horrible posture. You knew you were going to be on camera. <laughs> like, it always surprises me. People that, like, look ridiculous on camera. It's like, you knew. Like, you have a mirror, right? Yeah. Like, you could have asked somebody. Yeah. Bobby is like, we were very open about what the motive could be. He says, when we did interview him finally, there was going to be a final interview. And we were going to take him back through his alibi. And that's why we rented a hotel room. And they flashed to an image of the Staten Island Hotel. And, like... That place looked classic. Um, we said, Andre, look, we got this tape of Willowbrook. Remember you used to work at Willowbrook? Oh, yeah, it was terrible. I said, remember how Geraldo Rivera did the expose? And he said, yeah, but I never saw it. And I said, well, we have it. Would you like to come up and see it? Because we have a VCR up there. And he said, you know, I'd really like that. And we're saying, well, he did work at Willowbrook for two years. He was a, a physical therapist. Really? I thought he was like a maintenance man. Yeah, I thought he was an orderly. Yeah, like I thought he like collected trash. <laughs> Maybe there was something on the tape that's going to shake him. And like I think that people that can work in like a mental institution, if they're like genuinely nice, like that's. I guess admirable, but like I would be that's terrifying. Could not work in a mental institution. Yeah. That has to be one of the saddest jobs. Like I could couldn't do it. No. That's like I could never work in a funeral home. I could never work in a nursing home. Yeah. A funeral home though, it's like, ugh. It's like I just feel like it's so heavy. Like you it's just like depressed twenty four seven. Like you just see people like at their saddest and like over and over and over again yeah Ugh. like god bless people that can do that but oh i, I know I cry a lot and i'd get even fatter than i already am oh my god so did, uh, speaking of funeral home creeps did i ever tell you about that the guy that um the funeral home my dad was at hit on me i feel like you did the guy ran it yeah it was so awkward it wasn't like at the viewing it was like a couple weeks after i don't know they gave you like i think like what my mom got oh i think it was thank you cards like a couple weeks after we picked up like the thank you cards so that we could like sign them and mail them out to people that like you know like sent flowers or like the message in the you know like the book they sign and stuff yeah and my mom was like, can you like swing by and pick him up? Because it was like kind of on my way. Home. It was like right by where I worked at the time. And so um, like I went in and so she told the guy I'd be coming by. And like, let me tell you, when I say that I was uncomfortable, he looked like he worked in a funeral home for one. And like, he looked like he was like a part of the Adams family. And like, you know, just like that creepy, like, uh, like weird, creepy uncle in a corner that like doesn't say anything, but like always in the shadows. Mm-hmm. So I was like, my mom needs me to pick up like 
the cards or whatever. And so he's like, can you have a seat in my office? And like, other than his desk chair, there was a couch. So he comes in and sat on the couch and I'm like, why are you sitting on the couch next to me? (laughs) And like, it's like weird vibes anyway. Cause it's like, I mean, I feel like it's a weird vibes just in a funeral home in general. Yeah. But then he's like, asked, like he was asking me how everyone was doing. And it was like, I thought like he was weird, but that he was like probably trained to ask people these questions or whatever. Like he's like, how's everyone holding up? Like, how is your family doing? Like, I don't know. I just imagine that's probably normal funeral home small talk. Yeah. But then he put his hand on my knee. Ew. And I was like, and it was not just like tapped my leg. It was like how Dan puts his, like, would grab my leg. Yeah. Like full flat palm, like kind of more toward the inside. So I immediately moved my leg like his hand was on fire. And, like, I'm, like, oh, my God, how do I get out of here? So I'm sure I just, like, look like an idiot. <laughs> and then he's, like, asking me if I was married. And I was, like, uh, um, no. And I was, as I was saying, I said, no, I have a boyfriend was what I was saying. But as soon as I said no, he, like, is, like, oh, me either. And he moved closer. And I was, like, ugh. I'm like, and then he heard me say that at a boyfriend. He goes, Well, I just know from experience that lots of relationships fail after the death of a parent. It's a really intense time. And I was like sweating. I was so uncomfortable. And I'm awkward, like in an ideal situation. (laughs) Like, I only tricked Dan into being interested in me because I thought there was no way he would ever like want to be with me so I could be myself (laughs) and like joke around with him. Instead of, like, stuttering and being weird. (laughs) And, like, of course, I said something like, oh, well, fingers crossed. And, like, I get up all fast, like, so, like, you can't touch me anymore. And then he still gave me his number and then his, like, funeral home card. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, you're gross. Yeah, that's weird. And he, like, he said, like, something like, well, here's my number. If your status changes, like, <gasps> I'm sure I can help you get your mind off things. It was like, I'm like, look, maybe this is judgmental of me, but, like, I could not date somebody that worked in a funeral home. Like, I think it's, like, honorable work or whatever, like, far better than me because I couldn't handle it. But could you imagine allowing hands that have touched dead bodies all day to touch your body <laughs> there's not enough soap in the world oh my god like no fucking thanks <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh please tell me like like you'd be like you know for sure you'd be like oh how many times did you wash your hands babe yeah and like if their hands were ever cold i'd be like oh <laughs> Oh my I mean, gro- yeah, he was really gross. I was like, I never again in my life am I doing you a favor to my mom. <laughs> yeah, I was like irrationally mad at her about it. <laughs> so they show clips of Geraldo's expose. I think this is the part you've been waiting for. Like, and first of all, Geraldo is so extra. He says, perhaps the governor can defend and explain away the budget cuts for the Department of Mental Hygiene, and perhaps Dr. Miller can explain and defend the filthy, dehumanizing conditions we found in this and other buildings, 
but they won't do it on this program. What we found and documented here is a disgrace to all of us. This place isn't a school. It's a dark corner where we throw children who aren't pretty to look at. It's the big town's leper colony. The visuals are fucking disturbing. Like, it's terrifying. I'm going to have nightmares for weeks. Yeah. So, Bobby Jensen says that Andre started crying watching the Geraldo Rivero expose. And Andre said, do you see how it was? You see how it was. We were victims, too. Meaning the attendants or the people that worked there that had to, like, keep their mouth shut and, and watch all of this go on. And I wrote, well, Andre Rand looks very similar manner mannerism wise to many of the patients. Um, and I, if you had any kind of like mental illness, I would imagine working in some place like that would completely destroy what shred of sanity you had. Yeah. But so Andre sat there and his eyes rolled and he started drooling in the hotel. And that sounds absolutely terrifying. Oh, yeah, it's like he went into, like, some episode or something. Yeah, I, I would start crying, I think. So, Ralph Aquinas, which, and I do, like, if he did kill these people, like, I do believe he thought he was doing it at, like, a service. Like, he was thinking, like, well, death is probably better than what these kids are going to get. But that's still, like, that's so just, like, well, and I guess back then they probably didn't vet anybody. I was going to say, like, I feel like you should be, like, tested to make sure like mentally you can keep working there yeah so ralph says we could see what was happening to him and it's like you would kneel right in front of him and say say it tell us the truth tell us the truth now and that's brave i would not be getting in that man's face in the middle of a trance like maybe if he was all strapped up like hannibal lecter but even then i'd be terrified of it like what if he just like reached out and like bit your face ralph told him god would forgive him and god damn it with those videos of the kids like it's so gross it looks like the exorcist Mm. like they thought oh they thought that they had a confession and they were so close they thought he was going to talk and then he just started to rock and i was like fuck that i would have been out of that room real quick he was that way for the rest of the night, the whole next day, and he didn't start talking to people until two or three days later. Like, that makes me feel bad. Like, you need to put him in a mental institution. Like, this trial is not going to do anybody justice. Like, he needs, like, well, some I'm help. He wasn't, That's I'm not... surprised he wasn't found unfit for trial. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, yeah, that's very... I don't know. They show a clip of him being taken somewhere and I assumed it was court. And he looks yeah. terrifying. And like, so then Josh, I don't know why he annoys me, but he's being dramatic. Like he's like, were the answers all available in Geraldo's videos? And if so, had the sins of Willowbrook finally come back to haunt the residents of Staten Island? Like the way he says things, it reminds me of like, that's how I would have written a script if I was in like, like high school like all overly dramatic like blah 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 like it's like my so-called life Mm -hmm. over here um andre ran received a guilty verdict 23 years after seven-year-old holly ann hughes vanished from outside of her staten island home they show footage of people exiting the courthouse surrounded by news cameras and some lady is yelling the heroes are right here like she was screaming and i was like lady okay we get it like calm down 
she's like, he's a killer and a kidnapper. Donna Katungo wants him to tell them where the bodies are. And I, like, I don't know. Like, I understand wanting to know where the bodies are. But after seeing all this, like, I don't know that he knows. Like, I feel like he, like, he probably did things in a, like, it seems like he probably, like, if he did this, then something that he saw these kids do at some point triggered a memory and then he kind of went Mm -hmm. into a trance. And so I don't know that he would even remember what he did while he was in that trance. And I don't think he would talk even if he did. But so Holly Ann's mother, Holly Cedarholm, and I was like, lady, (laughs) did you really name your daughter Holly? Which is weird because I named my son Daniel. And so obviously I don't think it's like weird for a dad and a son to have the same name. But like... For some reason, it's weirder for a girl, a woman, to name her daughter after her when it's not for a man to name their son after him. Did that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I don't... I do think that's weird. But, like, I mean, who knows what that even says about me as a human. But Holly says that she has a lot of weight that's lifted off immediately following the verdict, which I don't know that I would. Like, I guess if you really believed he did it and you felt like that she was getting justice, but like there, I don't know. I mean, I guess I do think that he did it, but I don't think that they proved mm-hmm. it. Um, but I mean, I guess if, if that's how you, like, if you felt like it was the person you wouldn't care if the case was like the best or not. So, with the conviction, Andre Rand will most likely die in prison. He's sentenced to 25 years to life for the kidnapping of Holly Ann Hughes. He will be eligible for parole in 2037. He'll be 98 years old. And so, the defense team is saying, like, you know, no matter how horrible the allegation was, this case was hardly a case where it was proved conclusively that this guy committed this crime. Larry Simon says that goes to show you that when a kid is hurt or an innocent child is lost, people want to basically lynch you. And if they had an opportunity to lynch anybody, they would lynch Andre Rand. Holly's dad, Peter, didn't think that they would ever get to trial or have Rand be be found guilty, but he still doesn't feel like he has closure. And I would imagine even if you knew that like she was likely dead if since he didn't confess to it and you don't have a body there's still like a part of you fighting to believe that so he just wants to find her remains and give her a proper burial which is horrible like that that would be very terrible so donna is ready to go back and keep searching willowbrook to find bodies and gather more evidence and like i don't know why she's so gung-ho about this because it's like one time she found like a body that seems very likely that it was planted there but like like for 20 some odd years like i feel like she doesn't like our family and she's like look i have to go search for bodies i'll be back um so she believes that rand enjoys playing head games and that he will drop clues over the next few years because he likes to be the center of attention I said, dramatic Josh is back. He says, was Andre Rand convicted on fact or convicted on fact or fiction? I probably never know. But for the residents of Staten Island, there was no distinction. He was their child murderer, their scapegoat, and their boogeyman, all tightly woven into one. 
to some Andre Rand was the ringleader and did underground to aid an underground community of outcasts who roamed the woods to others he was an unwitting puppet manipulated by a deviant cult that trafficked in children or a delusional murderer fueled by our own urban failures killing those he thought weren't worthy of living we will never know the real story behind andre rand so all we're left with is our version that's of cropsy but now now we've added another chapter for the next generation of kids on staten island the power of the urban legend is that it doesn't claim to be the truth, but rather it says the truth is a range of possibilities and it's the audience who must decide. Which, okay, but, like, he was so dramatic. He was annoying. I mean, I thought it was a good documentary, but he got on my nerves. Nothing from you? Nah. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was good. It was good. But like, it was weird. Yeah, it was weird and kind of scary. Well, yeah. Well, those videos yeah, were scary. That's what scared me the most. And like, I don't know. I feel like, like, don't parents like visit their kids? Like, when it, like why did it take so long for somebody to like say yeah, something? Yeah, I don't know. I, but that was like a different time where like that was like more, probably common if you like you put your kid in an institution. Oh yeah. I mean, obviously not in the eighties that that already had changed, but like back in like the previous generation. Mm-hmm. Like, do they even still mm-hmm. do electric no. therapy? Not on like mentally handicapped people. I think that's like inhumane. I don't know. For some reason, I think they might still, but I don't know why I think that. But, like, they, there was this movie Requiem of a Dream where Ellen Burstyn, um, her character got shock therapy because she was, like, she basically, like, drove herself insane taking diet pills. And so then, like, she wasn't eating and so she, like, started hallucinating and mm-hmm. stuff. And she was, like, older. She didn't know. It was, like, I don't remember. I think it was like in the early 2000s that this movie was filmed, but like, actually, I don't even know when it was made, but I think like in the movie, it was kind of like when doctors would prescribe like shit for like weight loss, it was basically just like, you know, like legal speed Mm -hmm. or whatever. And, but she was so crazy that they had to give her electric shock therapy and that shit looked terrible. And that, that was a movie, so I'm not even sure, like, could you imagine? Could you imagine the smell? No. I wonder. Do they still? Is it all just like lethal injection, or do they ever do the electric chair? On I do not think they do electric chair. I think that was found inhumane. I think it's all just lethal injection now. Uh, yeah, the electric chair does not seem. Yeah. Okay. Especially, did you ever see the Green yeah. Isle? And I'm sure that did actually happen. Where they someone. didn't put the sponge up there. Yeah. That's gross. Yeah. I read that book like a long time ago, and like the book version is like very detailed, and it was like creepy. Was it way better than the movie? 
Looney's good. I thought it, it's good. I mean, I guess it depends. Like, if you, like, when I read books, I, like, I have an easy time of, like, picturing it in my head almost like, mm-hmm. a like I can see it. I, but I think it probably isn't better if you don't, like, read like that. Like, if you can't picture things yeah. like that. I know some people can't. But I usually tend to think books are always better than the movie because I like little details. Like I ask a lot Yeah, of books are always better than the movie. Thank you for listening to True Crime True Family. Follow us on our Twitter at TCTFP and Instagram at TCTF Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us where you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Please leave a rating and review. We appreciate all the feedback. Join us next week.